0: Introduction to the History of English Literature by Hippolyte Adolphe Taine 1. History, within a hundred years in Germany, and within sixty years in France, has undergone a transformation owing to a study of literatures. The discovery has been made that a literary work is not a mere play of the imagination, the isolated caprice of an excited brain, but a transcript of contemporary manners and customs and the sign of a particular state of intellect. The conclusion derived from this is that, through literary monuments, we can retrace the way in which men felt and thought many centuries ago. This method has been tried and found successful. We have meditated over these ways of feeling and thinking and have accepted them as facts of prime significance. We have found that they were dependent on most important events, that they explain these, and that these explain them, and that henceforth it was necessary to give them their place in history. And one of the highest. This place has been assigned to them, and hence all is changed in history. The aim, the method, the instrumentalities, and the conceptions of laws and of causes. It is this change as now going on, and which must continue to go on, that is here attempted to be set forth. On turning over the large stiff pages of a folio volume, or the yellow leaves of a manuscript, in short, a poem, a code of laws, a confession of faith, What is your first comment? You say to yourself that the work before you is not of its own creation. It is simply a mold like a fossil shell. An imprint similar to one of those forms embedded in a stone by an animal which once lived and perished. Beneath the shell was an animal and behind the document there was a man. Why do you study the shell unless to form some idea of the animal? In the same way do you study the document in order to comprehend the man? Both shell and document are dead fragments and of value only as indications of the complete living being. The aim is to reach this being. This is what you strive to reconstruct. It is a mistake to study the document as if it existed alone by itself. That is treating things merely as a pedant, and you subject yourself to the illusions of a bookworm. At bottom mythologies and languages are not existences. The only realities are human beings who have employed words and imagery adapted to their organs and to suit the original cast of their intellects. A creed is nothing in itself. Who made it? Look at this or that portrait of the 16th century, the stern, energetic features of an archbishop or of an English martyr. Nothing exists except through the individual. It is necessary to know the individual himself. Let the parentage of creeds be established, or the classification of poems or the growth of constitutions, or the transformations of idioms, and we have only cleared the ground. True history begins when the historian has discerned beyond the mists of ages the living, active man, endowed with passions, furnished with habits, special in voice, feature, gesture and costume, distinctive and complete, like anybody that you have just encountered in the street. Let us strive then, as far as possible— To get rid of this great interval of time which prevents us from observing the man with our eyes, the eyes of our own head. What revelations do we find in the calendared leaves of a modern poem? A modern poet, a man like de Musset, Victor Hugo, Lamartine, or Heine, graduated from a college and traveled, wearing a dress coat and gloves, favored by ladies, bowing fifty times and uttering a dozen witticisms in an evening, reading daily newspapers generally occupying an apartment on the second story, not over-cheerful on account of his nerves, and especially because, in this dense democracy in which we stifle each other, the discredit of official rank exaggerates his pretensions by raising his importance, and, owing to the delicacy of his personal sensations, leading him to regard himself as a deity, such as what we detect behind modern meditations and sonnets. Again, Behind a tragedy of the 17th century, there is a poet. One, for example, like Racine, refined, discreet, a courtier, a fine talker, with majestic peruke and ribboned shoes, a monarchist and zealous Christian. God having given him the grace not to blush in any society on account of zeal for his king or for the gospel. Clever in interesting the monarch. Translating into proper French. The Gaulois of Amiot. Deferential to the great. Always knowing how to keep his place in their company, assiduous and respectful at Marley as at Versailles, amid the formal creations of a decorative landscape and the reverential bows, graces, intrigues, and fineness of the braided seigneurs who get up early every morning to obtain the reversion of an office, together with the charming ladies who count on their fingers the pedigrees which entitle them to a seat on a footstool. On this point, consult St. Simon and the engravings of Perel. The same as you have just consulted Balzac and the watercolor drawings of Eugene Lamy. In like manner, on reading a Greek tragedy, our first care is to figure to ourselves the Greeks. That is to say, men who lived half naked in the gymnasiums or on a public square under a brilliant sky, in full view of the noblest and most delicate landscape, busy in rendering their bodies strong and agile, in conversing together, in arguing, in voting in carrying out patriotic piracies, and yet idle and temperate, the furniture of their houses consisting of three earthen jars and their food of two pots of anchovies preserved in oil, served by slaves who afford them the time to cultivate their minds and to exercise their limbs, with no other concern than that of having the most beautiful city, the most beautiful processions, the most beautiful ideas, and the most beautiful men. In this respect, a statue like the Maligar, Or the Theseus of the Parthenon, or again a sight of the blue and lustrous Mediterranean, resembling a silken tunic out of which islands arise like marble bodies, together with a dozen choice phrases selected from the works of Plato and Aristophanes, teach us more than any number of dissertations and commentaries. And so again, in order to understand an Indian Purana, one must begin by imagining the father of a family who, having seen a son on his son's knees, follows the law and, with axe and pitcher, seeks solitude under a banyan tree, talks no more, multiplies his fastings, lives naked with four fires around him under the fifth fire, that terrible sun which endlessly devours and resuscitates all living things, who fixes his imagination in turn for weeks at a time on the foot of Brahma, then on his knee, on his thigh, on his navel, and so on, until, beneath the strain of this intense meditation, Hallucinations appear when all the forms of being, mingling together and transformed into each other, oscillate to and fro in this vertiginous brain until the motionless man, with suspended breath and fixed eyeballs, beholds the universe melting away like vapor over the vacant immensity of the being in which he hopes for absorption. In this case, the best of teachings would be a journey in India. But, for lack of a better one, Take the narratives of travelers along with works in geography, botany, and ethnology. In any event, there must be the same research. A language, a law, a creed, is never other than an abstraction. The perfect thing is found in the active man, the visible corporeal figure which eats, walks, fights, and labors. Set aside the theories of constitutions and their results, of religions and their systems, and try to observe men in their workshops or offices. In their fields, along with their own sky and soil, with their own homes, clothes, occupations, and repasts, just as you see them when, on landing in England or in Italy, you remark their features and gestures, their roads and their inns, the citizen on his promenades, and the workman taking a drink. Let us strive as much as possible to supply the place of the actual, personal, sensible observation that is no longer practicable. This being the only way in which we can really know the man. Let us make the past present. To judge of an object it must be present. No experience can be had of what is absent. Undoubtedly, this sort of reconstruction is always imperfect. Only an imperfect judgment can be based on it. But let us do the best we can. Incomplete knowledge is better than none at all, or than knowledge which is erroneous, and there is no other way of obtaining knowledge approximatively of bygone times than by seeing approximatively the men of former times. Such is the first step in history. This step was taken in Europe at the end of the last century when the imagination took fresh flight under the auspices of Lessing and Walter Scott, and a little later in France under Chateaubriand, Augustin Thierry, Michelet, and others. We now come to the second step. 2. On observing the visible man with your own eyes what do you try to find in him? The invisible man. These words which your ears catch. Those gestures, those airs of the head, his attire and sensible operations of all kinds, are, for you, merely so many expressions. These express something, a soul. An inward man is hidden beneath the outward man, and the latter simply manifests the former. You have observed the house in which he lives, his furniture, his costume, in order to discover his habits and tastes, the degree of his refinement or rusticity, his extravagance or economy his follies or his cleverness. You have listened to his conversation and noted the inflections of his voice, the attitudes he has assumed, so as to judge of his spirit, self-abandonment or gaiety, his energy or his rigidity. You consider his writings, works of art, financial and political schemes, with a view to measure the reach and limits of his intelligence, his creative power and self-command, to ascertain the usual order, kind, and force of his conceptions in what way he thinks and how he resolves. All these externals are so many avenues converging to one center, and you follow these only to reach that center. Here is the real man, namely, that group of faculties and of sentiments which produces the rest. Behold a new world, an infinite world. For each visible action involves an infinite train of reasonings and emotions, new or old sensations which have combined to bring this into light and which like long ledges of rock sunk deep in the earth, have cropped out above the surface and attained their level. It is this subterranean world which forms the second aim, the special object of the historian. If his critical education suffices, he is able to discriminate under every ornament in architecture, under every stroke of the brush in a picture, under each phrase of literary composition, the particular sentiment out of which the ornament, the stroke, and the phrase have sprung. He is a spectator of the inward drama which has developed itself in the breast of the artist or writer. The choice of words, the length or shortness of the period, the species of metaphor, the accent of a verse, the chain of reasoning—all are to him an indication. While his eyes are reading the text his mind and soul are following the steady flow and ever-changing series of emotions and conceptions from which this text has issued. He is working out its psychology. Should you desire to study this operation, regard the promoter and model of all the high culture of the epic, Goethe, who, before composing his, Iphigenia, spent days in making drawings of the most perfect statues and who, at last, his eyes filled with the noble forms of antique scenery and his mind penetrated by the harmonious beauty of antique life, succeeded in reproducing internally. With such exactness, the habits and yearnings of Greek imagination as to provide us with an almost twin sister of the Antigone, of Sophocles and of the goddesses of Phidias. This exact and demonstrated divination of bygone sentiments has, in our days, given a new life to history. There was almost complete ignorance of this in the last century. Men of every race and of every epoch were represented as about alike—the Greek, the Barbarian, the Hindu the man of the Renaissance and the man of the eighteenth century, cast in the same mold and after the same pattern, and after a certain abstract conception which served for the whole human species. There was a knowledge of man but not of men. There was no penetration into the soul itself. Nothing of the infinite diversity and wonderful complexity of souls had been detected. It was not known that the moral organization of a people or of an age is as special and distinct as the physical structure of a family of plants or of an order of animals. History today, like zoology, has found its anatomy, and whatever branch of it is studied, whether philology, languages or mythologies, it is in this way that labor must be given to make it produce new fruit. Among so many writers who, since Herder, Otfried Muller, and Goethe have steadily followed and rectified this great effort. Let the reader take two historians and two works. One, The Life and Letters of Cromwell, by Carlyle, and the other the Port Royal, of Saint Bove. He will see how precisely, how clearly, and how profoundly we detect the soul of a man beneath his actions and works. How, under an old general and in place of an ambitious man vulgarly hypocritical. We find one tormented by the disordered reveries of a gloomy imagination, but practical in instinct and faculties, thoroughly English and strange and incomprehensible to whoever has not studied the climate and the race. How, with about a hundred scattered letters and a dozen or more mutilated speeches, we follow him from his farm and his team to his general's tent and to his protector's throne, in his transformation and in his development, in his struggles of conscience and in his statesman's resolutions in such a way that the mechanism of his thought and action becomes visible and the ever-renewed and fitful tragedy, within which racked this great gloomy soul, passes like the tragedies of Shakespeare into the souls of those who behold them. We see how, behind convent disputes and the obstinacy of nuns, we recover one of the great provinces of human psychology. How fifty or more characters, rendered invisible through the uniformity of a narration careful of the proprieties, came forth in full daylight, each standing out clear in its countless diversities. How, underneath theological dissertations and monotonous sermons, we discern the throbbings of ever-breathing hearts, the excitements and depressions of the religious life, the unforeseen reaction and pell-mell stir of natural feeling, the infiltration of surrounding society, the intermittent triumphs of grace. Presenting so many shades of difference that the fullest description and most flexible style can scarcely garner in the vast harvest which the critic has caused to germinate in this abandoned field. And the same elsewhere. Germany, with its genius, so pliant, so broad, so prompt in transformations, so fitted for the reproduction of the remotest and strangest states of human thought. England, with its matter-of-fact mind, so suited to the grappling with moral problems, making them clear by figures, weights, and measures, by geography and statistics, by texts and common sense. France, at length, with its Parisian culture and drawing-room habits, with its unceasing analysis of characters and of works, with its ever-ready irony at detecting weaknesses, with its skilled finesse in discriminating shades of thought, all have plowed over the same ground and we now begin to comprehend that no region of history exists in which this deep sub-soil should not be reached if we would secure adequate crops between the furrows. Such is the second step, and we are now in train to follow it out. Such is the proper aim of contemporary criticism. No one has done this work so judiciously and on so grand a scale as Saint Boeuf. In this respect, we are all his pupils. Literary, philosophic, And religious criticism in books, and even in the newspapers, is today entirely changed by his method. Ulterior evolution must start from this point. I have often attempted to expose what this evolution is. In my opinion, it is a new road open to history and which I shall strive to describe more in detail. 3. After having observed in a man and noted down one, two, three, and then a multitude of sentiments, Do these suffice and does your knowledge of him seem complete? Does a memorandum book constitute a psychology? It is not a psychology, and here, as elsewhere, the search for causes must follow the collection of facts. It matters not what the facts may be. Whether physical or moral, they always spring from causes. There are causes for ambition, for courage, for veracity, as well as for digestion, for muscular action, and for animal heat. Vice and virtue are products like vitriol and sugar. Every complex fact grows out of the simple facts with which it is affiliated and on which it depends. We must therefore try to ascertain what simple facts underlie moral qualities the same as we ascertain those that underlie physical qualities, and, for example, let us take the first fact that comes to hand, a religious system of music, that of a Protestant church. A certain inward cause has inclined the minds of worshippers toward these grave, monotonous melodies, a cause much greater than its effect. That is to say, a general conception of the veritable outward forms of worship which man owes to God. It is this general conception which has shaped the architecture of the temple, cast out statues, dispensed with paintings, effaced ornaments, shortened ceremonies, confined the members of a congregation to high pews which cut off the view and governed the thousand details of decoration, posture, and all other externals. This conception itself again proceeds from a more general cause, an idea of human conduct in general, inward and outward, prayers, actions, dispositions of every sort that man is bound to maintain toward the deity. It is this which has enthroned the doctrine of grace, lessened the importance of the clergy, transformed the sacraments, suppressed observances, And changed the religion of discipline into one of morality. This conception, in its turn, depends on a third one, still more general, that of moral perfection, as this is found in a perfect God, the impeccable judge, the stern overseer, who regards every soul as sinful, meriting punishment, incapable of virtue or of salvation, except through a stricken conscience which he provokes and the renewal of the heart which he brings about. Here is the master conception consisting of duty erected into the absolute sovereign of human life, and which prostrates all other ideals at the feet of the moral ideal. Here we reach what is deepest in man. For, to explain this conception, we must consider the race he belongs to, say the German, the Northman, the formation and character of his intellect, his ways in general of thinking and feeling, that tardiness and frigidity of sensation which keeps him from rashly and easily falling under the empire of sensual enjoyments, that bluntness of taste, that irregularity and those outbursts of conception which arrest in him the birth of refined and harmonious forms and methods, that disdain of appearances, that yearning for truth, that attachment to abstract, bare ideas which develop conscience in him at the expense of everything else. Here the search comes to an end we have reached a certain primitive disposition, a particular trait belonging to sensations of all kinds, to every conception peculiar to an age or to a race, to characteristics inseparable from every idea and feeling that stir in the human breast. Such are the grand causes, for these are universal and permanent causes, present in every case and at every moment, everywhere and always active, indestructible, and inevitably dominant in the end. Since, Whatever accidents cross their path being limited and partial, end in yielding to the obscure and incessant repetition of their energy, so that the general structure of things and all the main features of events are their work, all religions and philosophies, all poetic and industrial systems, all forms of society and of the family, all, in fine, being imprints bearing the stamp of their seal.